Hello listeners, Glenn Butler here for the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, and I would like to tell you about a new concept we're trying here on the podcast, the Spectacular Advice Hour, where we will answer your advice questions. If you're in a situation that you just can't crack, you're in a crossroads in your life, you're in a real bind, big or small, we want to help. Uh, that will be myself, my brother Scott, and my dear friend, Mr. Steve Willie, who does some of this stuff for a living, so, so he might have the actual good advice. Uh, the way to reach us for that is uh, by email at spectacularadvice at gmail.com. The other is our ask.fm page at ask.fm slash spectacularadvice. We won't read your name unless you tell us it's all right or give us a sleepless in Seattle style nom de plume. And Ask.fm questions can be totally anonymous if you have an account. So reach out to us. We want to help. And now on with the show. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Nobody needs me. I need someone to show me my place in all this. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 34 of the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, where we are back to talk about Star Wars. The Last Jedi has opened, and I would like to reveal something, a deal that I've been making for a while now. I would like to announce that the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, has been purchased by the Walt Disney Corporation. <laughs> Including the archives? Including the archives, we're going to put the mouse on everything. Does that mean we can finally have Wolverine on our podcast? We can have Wolverine on our podcast. We can try to get Patrick Stewart back to be on our podcast. You know, the possibilities are limitless. Mm. But the crossover that we have today is The Last Jedi. As always, for our Star Wars episodes, I am joined by my own brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott? How you doing today? <laughs> I stumped you on that one. Stumped me. Oh, I told you I didn't have a stupid question to ask. Give me a second. God. Okay. Guys, Scott's extant. That's all we can say. How do you always do this to me? How did I do to you? How are you doing today? As always, Scott can clear a high bar, but not a low one. <laughs> come, back. come back to me. Come back to me. I'll think of something. Oh Good lord. <laughs> <laughs> Is all this staying in the show? Of course. <laughs> cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, also, as with all of our Star Wars episodes, uh, we are joined today by my dear friend and friend of the show, Miss Alana Kelly. Alana, how are you today? I'm uh, apparently real, real sassy, possibly dangerous, like whatever the uh, Imperial version of BB-8 was. Does that guy have a name yet? Anti-BB-8? He probably does have a name somewhere. Everything in Star Wars gets a name somewhere. I just call him Darth BB-8. 
Oh, Darth BB-8, nice. Dar Darth BB-8 is a very good name. I'm sure there's a comic book about him already. Definitely. <laughs> Let's try to do a uh, non-spoiler uh, review portion for those of our listeners who maybe didn't go on opening night or on the opening weekend as we did. So, in very general terms, Alana, let's start with you. Uh, what were your expectations coming into the movie, and did it meet those? What did you think of the movie generally? Um, my expectations were super high because I loved The Force Awakens so, 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 so much. Mm -hmm. um, and I was legit nervous because it had changed hands from J.J. Abrams to Ryan Johnson. And I didn't know what to expect, but I enjoyed it. I don't think it's perfect. I think there's a couple random extra things that maybe were not necessary. So my perception of it is that it's a little, mm, a little bit more in need of editing than The Force Awakens was. But I was pleased. I enjoyed the character development, and I enjoyed the new characters. And yeah, I'm into it. Oh, I bet you enjoyed the development of the characters very much. I, I, I think once we get into the spoiler portion, we're going to be yelling a lot about Kylo. Mm-hmm, probably. Mm -hmm. um, Scott, you told me uh, before we saw the movie that you were kind of looking forward to this a lot more than you'd look forward to a Star Wars movie in a long time. So uh, how did that work out for you? Well, the reason that I was looking forward to it so much, it's really the most I've been looking forward to a Star Wars movie since The Phantom Menace opened in 1999. And the reason for that is because... The Phantom Menace opened in 1999. Yes, by 2002, I had seen The Phantom Menace. And by 2005, I pretty much knew what to expect. Yeah. So I hadn't had the experience... I mentioned to you when we walked out of The Force Awakens, it sort of, when we were, went to see that movie on opening night, and as we were leaving the theater, it just sort of hit me as, like, this revelation that I just had to sort of stop for a minute and concentrate on for a moment that, wow, that's the first time I've gone to the theater and seen a really great Star Wars movie since 1983. <laughs> yeah. That was something of an experience. And now, with the track record of The Force Awakens, and to an extent Rogue One, this is the first time I could go to a Star Wars movie expecting a really great Star Wars experience since 1999, when we were all anticipating The Phantom Menace and did not know the disaster which was about to ensue. Mm -hmm. So, I had a lot more anticipation for this than I did for The Phantom Menace. For The Phantom Menace, I sort of had the same mindset that I did for the first Star Trek reboot movie in 2009, which was sort of, I hope it's good, but I am not going to pin any of my hopes or expectations on this unknown quantity. Now we have The Force Awakens, we have Rogue One, it's not an unknown quantity, we can expect something good, and we got something good, which was very gratifying, although I did not have that same experience I had walking out of The Force Awakens, because The Force Awakens was just such a revelation that, wow, good Star Wars exists again. I didn't have yeah, that same revelatory experience coming out of The Last Jedi because I was expecting something better this time. Yeah, after The Force Awakens, I was just basically crying and opening up my wallet and shaking it out. I, I went to the theater <laughs> so many times. Oh, my God. Yeah, this was, this was also very good. I think you can argue whether this or Force Awakens is the better movie. It's, this was also a very, very good movie, but it was not the surprise that Force Awakens was, and it was not the sort of, like I said before, sort of the revelation that, wow, it's good. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to stand by my argument that it could have been tightened up just a little bit. 
Well, this is a lot of movie. Yes, there there's a lot there, not just in length, but it goes some places. Yeah, I don't think it's a spoiler to, to point out. This is a two and a half hour movie, fully two and a half hours. It's like 231 or 235 or something like that. So mm-hmm. it is it is a long movie and it does have a lot packed into it. It's not a slow movie that dwells. It it moves, it goes places and it That's fits true. a lot into that two and a half hours. What do you think, Glenn? What's your non-spoiled, you know, back of the napkin calculation? I left the theater kind of amazed at just how much was there. There's a lot of there there. And and it's not just the length, it's how much plot happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. In, in terms of advancing the characters, advancing their situations, changing their situations, uh, there is a lot of there there. And it's taken a while to kind of sink in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably going to be a lot of people's experiences, that, that it's a movie that has to sink in a lot. I really want to see it again just to get, like, a perspective on it. Because mm-hmm. it was just so much to begin with. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of the... Like Alana said, a lot of the character work and the character journeys in this movie are really good. Uh, Oscar Isaac's character, Poe Dameron, has a very good storyline in this movie where he didn't he really have much of a storyline in Force Awakens. He was just sort of there. Yeah, he has a lot Definitely. more to do. He has a he has a character journey in this movie, which he did not have in Force Awakens. Uh Finn's story we can talk about. I was not as huge a fan of that arc, but Ray has a lot to do in this movie. Even Kylo gets a lot to do in this movie. And not even in terms of character, but also just the plot of what's going on with the Resistance and the First Order and Snoke and Kylo and all of that. There's a lot of that, too. There's a lot packed into this. There's like two, two and a half movies worth of storyline packed into this two and a half hour movie that only takes place over a short period of time. It's not like this movie covers six months or a year of time. So there's a lot packed into a short time. Oh, yeah. And it's tacked onto the timing of Force Awakens pretty closely. Very closely. I mean, I don't want to get too far into the timing exactly because this is supposed to be the non-spoiler, but it's just... I don't think that's a spoiler just to say this movie doesn't take place over months and months and months. This movie takes place over a short period of time, and a lot happens in that period of time. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it's following very directly. Um, I don't think it's a, it's a spoiler to say that uh, while I wasn't really interested in Kylo Ren given the events of The Force Awakens... Uh, we talked about this when we did Force Awakens two years ago, and I don't remember everything I said, because once something exits my mouth, it also exits my brain, because it's recorded. I don't need to remember things. So, I don't remember a damn thing I said in our Force Awakens podcast, but uh, following The Force Awakens, I wasn't particularly interested in the character of Kylo Ren. This movie made me a lot more interested in Kylo Ren. I think Mm -hmm. this movie served him quite well. It did. Well, I think there's a difference between... You can be interested in a character and still not like the character, you know? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, Kylo Ren is still... I don't know if I'm going into spoilers. I was going to say really quick, should we put a spoiler? (laughs) (laughs) Is this this where we go into spoilers? Do you want to launch right into it? I feel like if we're going to say anything of significance about Kylo in Episode 8, we got to do the spoilers. I think... Okay, okay, so... 
in general, it sounds like we all liked it. It's it's a good film. It's worth seeing. It's a worthy addition to Star Wars series. And now we're going to move into spoilers, right? Yes, I think yes. I think you're unlikely to feel the rising nausea and heartbreak that you experienced sitting in Phantom Menace. I think it's a solid <laughs> installment. <laughs> I didn't feel that sitting in Phantom Menace. Not I was the first time. I was so amped for Phantom Menace, it took me two or three viewings before it started to occur to me, wait a minute, this isn't very good. Mm, yeah. Interesting. So, let's jump right into spoilers. Uh, talking about Kylo Ren. Um, Alana, I know you are a thorough devotee. So I love this guy. Uh, let her rip, <laughs> let's go. So, there are many things I enjoyed about this. I enjoy the way Adam Driver performs Kylo in general. Like he just really leans into the angsty sort of suspended and emotional adolescence, you know, short temper. It shouldn't be particularly sympathetic, but I, I just love it. And I loved many moments that he had in the story. My favorite one, I think is Snoke. We meet Snoke in person and he just reads Kylo to filth, like everything, like basically all the commentary on Tumblr about how much Kylo sucked um, at the end of The Force Awakens in terms of losing power and losing direction when confronted with Rey. Snoke names it all, says he's a child, like basically calls out everything that everyone has a problem with, with Kylo Ren's character. Like the, just bringing that forward and being like, in fact, you are a crushing disappointment, um, my wayward apprentice, you know? And I just love it's like right up front. That's like the first one of the first scenes we have with 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 Kylo is his uh, is his meeting with his master, and um, I just appreciated that they didn't try to like the the story is not arguing anything but his abject failure. So it's just like wow failure. So like let's let's set up the arc right there. While and at the then, sa- while at the same time, mm-hmm. Snoke is like pretty nakedly just using that to manipulate him. Oh yeah, it's sure. a great it's a great display of exactly how Snoke controls Kylo because it's really classic abusive spouse, abusive parent, manipulative behavior. I mean, he's just nagging him the whole time, basically. And like basically hanging all of his responses on profound disappointment, which is something that Kylo struggled with his whole life being the child of Han and Leia. Like it's, it's just such a hot button and Snoke exploits it perfectly. And then, of course, we get some fascinating backstory about the events of the death of his um, Jedi cohort under Luke's guidance. So there's a ton, like, that adds a ton of dimension. And I, I wasn't sure what they were going to do with that, but I was really pleased to see sort of that questioning element. It's, and it's also, it's like a very, uh, or like a historical story trope to have the the teacher who's frightened by the genius uh, we've seen that play out in different stories and, and, and you know, what actually happened. And, and and also because Kylo is an unreliable narrator because he's so split. Sometimes he's more Ben and sometimes he's more Kylo. Like, where is the truth? Um, I think we actually ultimately can understand that Luke did attack Kylo when he was asleep. What the exact motivations were, I think they are as Luke described but like when we first see that scene we have raised skepticism entering it and you know that, that it's all lies but something does reach her from kylo because she then goes on to confront luke and demand uh, a deeper explanation for what happened 
I also was losing my mind because Tumblr was losing their mind that there was going to be some kind of force bond between Kylo and Rey after they had fought at the end of The Force Awakens, and then actually seeing it on screen was amazing. I thought it was really well done. It could have been only cheese factor, only extra sharp cheddar to have them talking to each other in their heads, but I actually they had different ways of doing it, different ways of showing the connection, and I loved literally every second of it. Um, yeah, there, I, I, I could literally talk about Kylo forever. Does anyone else want to make a comment? I cannot... I think it's a very interesting note, and it's very important to note that we don't really know what happened in that mm-hmm. whole confrontation. Because we have Kylo's perspective of he woke up and Luke was standing over him with a lightsaber, and so he defended himself. And then we have Luke saying, well, I ignited the lightsaber in my instant of feeling this way, but then I immediately realized I couldn't go through with it, and it was just this split second of, I'm gonna do this, but I knew I couldn't, and I felt shame for that, and then Kylo misinterpreted it. So we we really don't know exactly how close was Luke to just striking him down, right there. Well, I think that plays in very well with Luke's arc through the original trilogy and into this movie. Because the thing that he has to learn over and over is to resist his darkest impulses. You know, he rushes off to fight Darth Vader in Empire Strikes Back, and then he has to resist the temptation to kill him at the end of Jedi in the Emperor's Chamber. You know, he has to go right up to these base desires, these, like, gut feelings for things that he has to do, and he has to resist And there's a lot of fear in trying to train new Jedi and feeling one becoming so powerful in in the dark side. Like he says he was feeling this, you know, kind of growing in Kylo, and he knows how that tends to go. Though that's uh, that's something to note, because, I mean, it's really easy to condemn Luke for even this instant of, I'm going to kill a boy in his bed because I'm afraid of what he may become. But, like, Luke knew Darth Vader. Luke saw what happened to the galaxy under Darth Vader. And so, I mean, it's sort of the most overused time travel tropey question ever. If you could go back in time and kill Hitler in his crib, would you? That's what Luke is doing there, basically. So it's not as cut and dry as he was going to kill a boy in his bed. Yeah, the thing the thing with that is the right answer to would you go back in time and kill Hitler is I would go back in time and put Hitler in a loving home. You know? Uh, what, the evil baby orphanage? <laughs> yes, the, exactly, the evil baby orphanage. Except Kylo, Ben Solo, is already in the evil baby yeah, orphanage. Luke's Jedi training was the evil baby orphanage. And, and still this was happening. I mean, there's still a lot of backstory. It's probably in novels and stuff about how Snoke like first got in touch with him and started corrupting him or whatever. But Luke felt this thing growing, and his reaction was fear and panic and aggression for a moment, and he had to resist that, except... Too late. Too late. (laughs) Except he wound up standing over a kid with his lightsaber out, and that's easy to misinterpret. Luke's reaction was, I have to stop this before it gets out of control. He apparently has no confidence in his own ability to turn him back. In Jedi, Luke turns himself over to the Empire because he knows he can turn Vader back. He doesn't have that same confidence in regards to Ben Solo. I disagree. I think he wants to turn his father or die trying. 
I don't I don't think he knows 100% that he's going to succeed. Yeah, but he doesn't expend that same effort in regards to Ben Solo. He sneaks into his sleeping chamber and ignites his lightsaber over him. Did you get the feeling that he checked on Ben regularly? Like, read his mind regularly and was getting more and more suspicious? Or do you think that was the first time that he tried it? I'm not sure if he would have been actively kind of searching his feelings, searching Ben Solo's feelings, um, or if that's more of a passive thing where maybe they're training and he feels more of the dark side growing. That's exactly what I was going to say. I imagine there would be a lot of that maybe passively, maybe somewhat actively, but it, not like deep, but at least on the surface active mm -hmm. in as part of the training. Because, I mean, you saw in Empire Strikes Back, whenever Luke was starting to doubt himself or Luke was starting to you know, feel a certain way, Yoda could sense that. So I imagine there's some sensing, if not active, then at least passive, that is just part of the training, and that is probably how he got his first inklings that led him to investigate further. Mm. I was just thinking, um, this is a little bit off topic, but I was just thinking um, one of the things I really appreciate about the design of the story as a whole was a lot of... So Luke makes the comment that the Force, um, like the Jedi and the Sith or the light side and the dark side, are like the, the Force is not inherently good or bad. It just is. And then I noticed in the story, we have some shared perspectives coming from the dark side and the light side. For example, both Luke and Snoke agree that Kylo is extremely powerful, so he's attracted their interest from both sides. And then I noticed that both Kylo and Yoda would like to see the past abandoned. They think that the past is no longer useful and they want to burn it all down. I just, I thought it was interesting, like, like literally burn it all down. I, I, I thought it was very interesting that we have those thoughts articulated by representatives of the dark and the light side and um, sort of showing that it's morally more complex if we have like shared ideas coming from a, a sense of goodness and a sense of evil, um, then it's just, they're not purely good or purely evil. I enjoyed that, and I enjoyed various things they did with the actual cinematography to illustrate dark and light moments, both when we're in spaces occupied by the um, Empire and when, when we're on the island with Luke. I guess illustrations of balance or the idea of balance comes into it a lot. So there, there's just a lot of little artfulness there that I appreciated. Going back to Kylo for a second, one of the prevailing thoughts on him from Tumblr fandom, like you were talking about, Alana, and, and elsewhere, mm -hmm. was that he's basically a really shitty Darth Vader fanboy. <laughs> yeah. You know, who, who's doing bad cosplay and trying way too hard to be, like, the edgelord of the Sith. That occurred to me when we were watching Force Awakens again the day before we went to go see Last Jedi, that... You know, Darth Vader wore that mask because he was horribly burned and his lungs don't work right. Yeah. And he, his whole body was, like, reconstructed and he's more machine now than man. And he, so he needs all this apparatus to keep him alive. Kylo only wore that mask for the aesthetic. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Literally yes. no other reason. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And, and, Snow, and Snow, and that's part of what Snow... him about it was amazing. Exactly. Snow calls him out on that, too. You know, take that stupid thing off. Uh, so, but, but while all of that's true, and, and I definitely had that impression of Kylo, the sickly, ironic thing about Kylo Ren now is that... He's now a more successful Sith than Darth Vader was. He actually did kill his master and take his place. 
Yeah. From a certain point of view, yes, you could say that. <laughs> you know, that's basically what every Sith aspires to, right? However, if you want to say that he did, in fact, kill his master and take over, and therefore he's more successful than Darth Vader, does how shitty Kylo Ren is a Sith compared to Darth Vader, and yet seemingly more successful, does that translate into how much more shitty... The First Order is compared to the Empire? Oh, I thought you were going to say, does does that symbolize how much more shitty the galaxy is in this generation? Well, yeah, basically the same thing. I mean, the, the, the whole persona of General Hawks is just... Has he succeeded at anything he has done in any movie? Or I guess yeah. either movie? Yeah, his little, um... His tracking game worked for a long time. Okay, that's that. He was able to track them, yes, but... He couldn't find the droid he was supposed to find. He couldn't find the plans he was, or the map he was supposed to find. He got his Star Killer base destroyed. He got his Dreadnought ship destroyed when he tried to attack the Rebel base. The Rebels escaped when they weren't supposed to. And yes, he was able to track them, but and I get, and I guess all his failures at the end could be blamed on Kylo since Kylo was in charge at that point, but. Hux just yeah. seems to be, like, going from failure to failure to failure, and Kylo seems like such an emo child compared to Darth Vader, and they're the ones in charge of this First Order. And presumably a lot of the galaxy now, since the uh, New Republic is gone. Presumably practically all the galaxy now, considering the entire resistance to the First Order has been reduced to, like, a few dozen people on one ship. Yeah. Yeah, well, we we can we can get into that later. <laughs> um I think there's kind of an unfortunate parallel with a leader who tends to throw temper tantrums and other people who try to keep him in line saying, "No, we can do all the evil we want if you just calm down. We can be competent about our evil, but the leader keeps throwing his temper tantrums and so everything keeps blowing up in their faces." But anyway, yeah. You could make that argument, except that The Force Awakens came out in 2015, and it was filmed mostly in 2014. Yes. I know. I know. <laughs> well, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? Except in Star Wars, history kind of repeats itself a lot, too. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, let's change gears a little bit and talk about the whole General Leia plot and Carrie Fisher in general, because a lot of people were very emotional going into this because obviously because of the, the death of Carrie Fisher and not knowing quite how she would be used in this movie. Scott, what do you think about her role in this movie and her role in proceedings overall? I think entirely unintentionally, because this was obviously all filmed before her death, I think this is a shockingly appropriate send-off for Carrie Fisher. And for Leia. Her storyline in this movie, where she is sort of mentoring Poe a lot, mm. and showing her friendship with Admiral Holdo, and the two of them commiserating over, like, how many fellow rebels that they've lost over the years and commiserating over their grief over losing people that they care about. That's sort of an amazing scene to have as one of Carrie Fisher's last scenes in the franchise is her character talking about grief and losing people she loves. 
later her conversation with Luke, where they're talking about shared grief and losing people they love. That's an amazing scene to have as one of her last scenes before she passed away. Yeah, I thought her role in this movie was very, very powerful, and I'm glad that she had as much to do as she did. It did feel like in The Force Awakens she didn't have all that much to do. She had some good scenes with, with Han, and some good scenes as like the general basically in charge of the resistance but you know the characterization maybe was 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 a little light but she had a lot to do here she was not heavily involved in the plot of the force awakens but she is one of the drivers of the plot of this movie yeah her uh, pl- her plans and her actions yeah uh, alana what do you think of uh, her role in this movie Well, real quick, R.I.P. Carrie Fisher, although I feel like it would be dishonest not to comment that she is not the best actress I've ever seen. So I I enjoyed seeing her on screen because I I enjoy how they style her and the dialogue that they do for her, but I didn't particularly enjoy her acting. And I just want to do that as a a true fan. I want to offer critique as well. Um, Sure. And I I had a small... Um, just oh no science response to her being knocked out of the bridge and being in space and then her force ability saving her um, in a way that I find scientifically bankrupt but that's okay it's magic so I was a little distracted by that but I think what I enjoyed I, I very much enjoyed that the emerging second in command was another woman because we got to see their interplay, um, which I enjoyed a lot. I'm talking about uh, Laura Dern's character. And I liked even when General Organa is, un- is unconscious for, for part of the film, her influence and her personality are still present because Laura Dern says that she had studied under, you know, General Organa. Everything she knows, she knows from General Organa, including um, calling Poe uh, Flyboy, which is what Leia used to call Han to get under his skin. I, I, I enjoyed that callback a lot. And just like what it, watching the influence of a strong woman transfer to another strong woman um, was really great. To just to I enjoyed that a lot, and um, I like that they had that shared moment of thinking that Poe is such a uncontrollable rascal, but actually they like that about him. Um, it was very maternal and very fond. I enjoyed that. I agree that she had more to do, and I'm quite sorry that she won't be back in nine. Yeah, absolutely. I was knowing everything that went on going into the movie. I was shocked when she survived the movie. I just assumed they'd, like, have some editing trick or some small change they could make in post-production to give Leia the character some sort of send-off to explain why she wouldn't be back in Episode Nine. I just assumed that was coming. And then they have a scene where the bridge explodes and Leia's floating out in space, and I'm like... Well, that happened earlier in the film than I expected it to, but okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that too. I really did. Yeah, definitely. I, I think knowing that it's um, Disney and uh, the artist formerly known as Industrial Light and Magic, I think we're going to see some CGI fuck shit in 9 for at least a minute. Well, they have said that they won't do that. I mean, we'll see if you know they mm, fudge we'll on see. that. But... Yeah, I'm really... <sighs> I mean, we can get to that when we talk about the ending of the movie. It yeah, may not, yeah, it may, I it may not be an obstacle. Yeah, l- l- once we cover all the different like subplots, I'm going to want to 
uh, turn back to just how in the hell you make an episode 9 after this. Yeah, what comes next is going to be a very interesting discussion. Yeah, but first, while we're on the uh, the, the Leia storyline with, with Poe Dameron and Admiral Holdo, let's talk about the whole Admiral Holdo heel turn and face turn. <laughs> this uh, movie had a lot of turns like that. Yes. Like, not only with her, but also with Benicio Del Toro's character. He turned a couple of times. This this movie had a lot of moments like that where you thought everything was going in one direction, and then it just flipped. I liked it. I liked her strategy stuff. I liked that it was non-obvious. I liked that there was values besides heroism that they illustrated for us, and they, they named it, too. Like, they let us see how it plays out, and where the angle that we have on her is from Poe. But uh, I found her arc to have a lot... Like, she brought a lot to it. Laura Dern did well, I think, with her performances, too. And I, I, But I, w- I was quite moved when, when we got to the end. I was kind of wondering... The, you know, someone has to stay back and pilot, she was saying. And I was like, do they, though? Because it's basically just like a giant, it's such a big ship. Does anyone need to steer it really, though? And I, I didn't actually anticipate that she would make that move, even though seeing it start to take place and seeing her turn the ship around, like they start, you know, we start figuring it out just about the same time as the Empire does. Um, I'm sorry, not the Empire, the First Order. Um, same difference. Yeah. So, yeah, like it, it really, it worked on me. I was wondering why she stayed back. I was like, does she just want to die alone? Like, is it a martyrdom thing? Um, you know, why? Was it really necessary? And I, I hadn't thought of that. And I was very, very touched. And then also the the visual of, of that moment was incredible. Really good. The, my, my theater was shocked. Like, you know, group feels to see that. That was another moment where I thought, like okay, this is the scene where they kill Princess Leia. Mm. Because I I figured, okay, they're talking about their shared grief and they don't want to see another friend die, and then Leia's going to, like, knock her out somehow and put her on the transport, and Leia's going to take the ship and die with it. All through the movie, I was waiting for, okay, how are they going to write out Leia? Also, I don't quite understand. I mean, it made for an interesting subplot and, and some good scenes. I don't quite understand why the plan required Laura Dern's character to act like she was giving up and going to let them all be killed by the First Order, rather than just, like, telling the crew, hey, this is the plan, we need to get to this secure base. Yeah, much like a lot of uh, plot complications in a lot of movies... Uh, that subplot would have been very different if she had had a 30-second conversation with Poe. Yeah, I mean, she couldn't have just said, look, there's this ultra-secure base we're trying to reach, and we just have to get there? Also, in terms of the pacing of this movie, which we've been talking about, the and that entire subplot being based on we are maintaining the same distance from their ship, and we are just moving in a straight line towards a place, uh, might not be the most exciting way to structure your plot. Uh, I thought it might have had a dimension. They didn't actually articulate this at all, but I thought there might have been a security dimension to it, Um, just sort of a top-level concern that there could be spies within. That's true. So you wouldn't wouldn't tell anyone anything. Um, It'd be all 
need to know. Actually, Poe makes the joke about an, what a need to know mission is kind of early. Yeah, that's that's my read on it. The Poe storyline and his character evolution in this movie, where first Leia and then Holdo and then Leia again, are trying to get him to be a little less reckless, to focus more on the big picture and long-term survival of the fleet rather than just short-term accomplishing a particular mission at any cost. It becomes all the more important by the end where the Resistance is, like I said before, it's reduced to a few dozen people on the Millennium Falcon, and we know Leia's not going to be around in the next movie. I mean, she survives the movie, but we know she's not going to be around in the next movie. So Poe, through a combination of being one of the main characters and the attrition that the Resistance personnel goes through in this movie is the logical person left to sort of take over and be, if not the leader, then one of the leaders of this new rebellion against the Ascendant First Order. And so it's important that throughout this movie he learns to, you know, not throw away his dwindling assets on a particular mission, but focus more on the long-term survival of the overall rebellion. It does sort of play into that long-term storyline that I'm assuming is going to run over into the next film where we see the results of that, where he is in a more of a leadership position. While Finn is very much not becoming one of the leaders of the Resistance, in terms of our main characters. Well... (laughs) Other than attrition, maybe. Yeah, (laughs) and, you know, main billing. Yeah. Finn? Do you want to get into the Finn storyline now? Are we done with... Talking about Poe and rebelliousness and mutinies. Um, I th- I think I think I'm pretty good on on the Poe stuff. There was thankfully a lot more for him to do in this movie too. A lot of uh, character growth, I think, and a a little bit of of deconstruction of the like flyboy X wing jockey character. I really liked the interactions between him and Leia in this yes, movie. Yes, absolutely. Because there was a lot of after the Force Awakens, there was a lot of fandom. I don't even know the word, it's not speculation, but just sort of fandom imaginings about his relationship with General Organa, that that she is a mentor to him, that he really looks up to her, that he idolizes her, that he sees her like a surrogate mother, depending on what you're reading, it goes to different extents. But none of that was actually in Force Awakens, they barely interacted in Force Awakens, they were like part of the same meeting once or twice. So it was really interesting to actually see a relationship basically similar to that in this movie, where she is sort of a mentor to him, where he really does look up to her as a figure worthy of respect and admiration. I really liked that relationship. And I do appreciate, like you mentioned, Elena, that so much of the Resistance leadership is made up of older women. You know, you get the impression that a lot of them are what's left of the old rebellion, too. You know, there are a couple different ways that they could have gone with Leia for this new trilogy. And I think that, you know, being the leader of this new resistance is absolutely the best one. Because, I mean, this is headcanoning, but I imagine she would have lasted in the new Senate for about five minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, she didn't seem to be the most diplomatic person. (laughs) Exactly. 
So yeah, that that relationship between Leia and and Poe Dameron was was great to see, and I'm v- very sad that uh, that's probably going to be somewhat missing. <laughs> Um, well, but, I imagine the influence of oh, yeah. General Organa will be felt in the next movie, even if Leia obviously cannot be present as a character. Maybe, yeah. Uh, moving on to the Finn storyline in this movie. I don't know, it, it seemed a little slight to me. He's not going to have as media role in this movie as he did in The Force Awakens, because there was a lot for him to go through in Force Awakens. There was his whole defection from the First Order, his fear and, and panic reaction of wanting to just run away and become anonymous, and then coming into the fold of the of the Resistance with, with you know, bonding with Poe and then with Rey and all that, and, you know, that wasn't quite gonna gonna be as much of a character journey in this movie, but I kind of feel like Finn wound up, like, very much on the outskirts of the plot. It didn't feel like his storyline was very relevant. Well, to a large extent, his it was kind of a retread of what he does in Force Awakens. Like, the first thing he does after he wakes up is try to leave. And then he is literally, like, apprehended into, like, joining back up and taking part in the fighting. And so it's sort of the same arc he had in the last movie where he wanted to leave, but then once the fighting started, he couldn't, like, just turn his back on it. Well, the motivations for that were very different, though. He was trying to leave in The Last Jedi to go find Rey. And, and not just to leave the fight entirely and become an anonymous worker on the Outer Rim. You know, it, it, was, it was to find his friend, basically. But while abandoning his other friends. Are they his friends? Well, Poe was, was his friend, and BB-8, I suppose. Okay. Although he took BB-8 with him, eventually, so... Well, later. Yeah, that whole mission seems like a very large diversion to serve the purpose of getting him onto the Star Destroyer so that he could fight Phasma. Phasma. Well, it, it, was, it was a diversion in order to get him there so he could fight Phasma, and in order to fit in the class war allegory of the whole struggle between the Resistance and the First Order. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it seems like they could have gotten him over onto the Star Destroyer in a much simpler way that didn't involve a 40-minute sidetrack to the casino planet, but then you wouldn't have had the whole bit with the kids, which plays yes. into the end of the movie. Yes, uh, that too, absolutely. You, you wouldn't have had the bit with the kids, you wouldn't have had the entire class war apparatus where you have this like entertainment plaza it, it's it's like moss eisley for the one percent you know well they used a lot of the same yeah. instrumentation in the casino music that they used in the original cantina there's a lot of steel drum in there yeah the the steel drum for the from the cantina band was, was very uh very recognizable so, yeah they were definitely making a callback to that yeah and it's an interesting one because you remember what ben kenobi initially said about moss eisley <laughs> Not only did he call it a wretched hive of scum and villainy, he said, never will you find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. 
And they're explicitly calling back to that to reference this casino full of rich high rollers that made their money selling weapons to whoever would buy them, regardless of whether or not they're the quote-unquote good guys or bad guys. And so yeah. they're explicitly making drawing reference to that original comment. Not only is it a wretched hive of scum and villainy, but never will you find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Except now they're all in tuxedos and sipping champagne. Yes, space champagne. <laughs> and, of course, the character of Rose uh, was, was introduced for, for this whole subplot to kind of go along with Finn and be another character who is not one of the central leadership. She is very much not one of the central leadership. Kind of, I suppose, rank and file, you'd say. Um, Grunt. Yes, uh, grunt worker in, for the whole class allegory. Alana, what did you make of the subplot and Rose's character? I really loved the Rose character. I loved the performance from the actress. Um, I'm always here for characters that are not white. I think they got a lot done with that, and they, they led it very well with the little sequence with her sister, the bombardier, in the very beginning, the, the first act, or the, like, I, the open. Because like that gave some, some groundwork to it, and then they give her a nice piece of backstory about what it was like to live under the First Order and lose everything, have, you know, be either uh, interred or conscripted into labor on her planet, and like... They packed a lot into it, but she performed it so lightly and so naturally that I was not feeling you know, sort of the, the I am now narrating and giving backstory thing that sometimes people are stuck with with their dialogue. Like, she made it work very effectively. The The tone of this little side piece on the casino planet was really weird. Um, I was getting some Hunger Games feelings from it as opposed to, you know, the Star Wars universe feelings that I normally get. But I, th I think you're right that there's a strong class allegory that they're putting in there. But just, like, the way it was shot and the styling of it and the the choice to use the big CGI animals and everything just gave it kind of a, I was a little distracted away from feeling like it was a Star Wars story during that little piece, but I, I enjoyed it in the sense that it did like, it didn't ruin my good time that it was there. And it did seem like a long way to get Finn back onto the Star Destroyer. And I, and I honestly think that they may have wrote that entire thing so that they could shoot John Boyega in a first order officer's uniform so that they could confuse us all during the preview or the, you know, the trailers for, <laughs> for this story. Cause Tumblr absolutely lost their mind to see the stills of Finn in a First Order officer's uniform. What does it mean? Why did he go back to the First Order? Like, I, I think it might have just been a little bit of uh, marketing misdirection, um, but it was it was delicious. And, and I loved the look of the three of them, um, Benicio Del Toro and, and Rose and Finn, you know, sneaking around on the Star Destroyer like they threw a garbage can over BB-8 and just went for it. I like that a lot. It reminds me of the OT when, when they steal the stormtroopers' outfits and are trying to sneak around in episode four. So, so all in all, I enjoyed it. It was, it was different. There was less acting for Finn to do, but I was okay because it meant that there was more for Rose to do, and I was glad to see both a woman and a woman of color on screen. So I'll take it. I'll take it. It was weird, but it was okay. I think you're right that the tone of that whole sequence felt a little off compared to the rest of the movie because you have 
you have the whole Rey and Kylo thing and the Rey and Luke thing, and but you also have the Resistance fleet is steadily being whittled away down to nearly nothing. And meanwhile, Rose and Finn are having this, like, madcap adventure. You know, the whole where BB-8 breaks them out of prison, and then they ride on a herd of these things that look like hairless tauntauns, sort of. It, it definitely sort of feels slightly off. It doesn't have, like, the same gravity that the other storylines going on in the movie have. It doesn't feel as serious. Yeah, the the other storylines going on in the movie are definitely more portentous. Also, I think there's a lot of unexplored implications in the whole class storyline they're trying to explore. And and I know, you know, this is a 40-minute sidetrack in a two-and-a-half-hour movie that's trying to do, like, six hours worth of story, but... And is the middle movie. And is the middle movie of a trilogy, but we'll get there. We'll but, get there. I mean, it's all well and good to say that, you know, these rich people don't care who's in power, they'll make their money selling weapons to whoever is Ascendant, and it doesn't really matter to them. Even the Ascendant fascists who are bringing darkness to the entire galaxy aren't really going to impact these people, they're too rich to be fucked with, they'll just stay here at the casino regardless of what deprivations are going on on other worlds. But at the same time, she is a member of a resistance movement whose leader is literally a princess. Well, there was a lot of... Uh, true. Uh, there was a lot of uh, complication of those moral lines a little bit from the prequels in terms of the corruption of the Old Republic and the fact that they did have aristocracies and they did have slavery on a lot of planets. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's a little bit of the um, blurring of, of the categories that Luke tries to do when suddenly he knows what happened in the prequels. <laughs> There's a lot of slavery going on. Yeah. Because, like, the whole background where it turns out that Rey's parents basically sold her to Unkar Plot, like, was she a slave in Force Awakens? I didn't get that implication. I just thought that, like, he was the local strongman. He was the one that had all the resources, and so everyone had to grovel to him and work for whatever starvation wages he offered because he was the only one offering them. Was she literally a slave to that guy? And then there's the, like, apparently slave children in this one who tend to the racing animals. There's a lot of well, slavery I mean, going on. I, I mean, economic slavery is a thing. Yeah. See, that's what I assumed. It was just economic slavery because he was the one that, like, had the food to distribute. But, like, your parents don't literally sell you to, like, a wage slave, you know? I don't know. Interesting point. I really like that, and I hope it's the truth. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's a whole other thing. The person who told us that was Kylo Ren. Yeah, but Ray didn't disagree with him. Kylo said, you know, you already know this because you've explored your own feelings through the Force and you know the truth. And she agreed that, yes, I know that's the truth. Yeah, and I know we were, we were going to wait till after the break to get into all the Ray stuff, but God, I am so glad she isn't anybody. Oh, God, right? yes. Oh, my... Oh, thank you, Kathleen Kennedy. Thank you. <laughs> I never understood, like, oh, maybe she's Obi-Wan's daughter, or maybe she's Luke's daughter, or she's, like, Kylo's sister, 
or and, and none none of those made any sense why would you want the storyline to be that one of our favorite characters abandoned their young child on the desert planet why is that a storyline you're eagerly anticipating why can't this character just be a character yeah, there, there are children born with Force abilities spontaneously everywhere. They were gathering them from everywhere to train for the Jedi back when the Jedi were a thing, and they're still being born everywhere. Like, the kids uh, with the uh, Fothiers, I think, is are the animals. Is that what they're called? Um, it, it is a very stupid name, but this is Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Ewok looking at you. That's really weird. <laughs> Uh, well, well, okay. Well, while we're on the stupid animals for for just a second, this movie had an almost Lucasian tendency to stick in cute CG animals. Like, at, drill a hole and put them anywhere you can. There are the Fothiers. There are the crystal wolves on Crate at the end of the movie. There well, are the Porgs. I wouldn't call the crystal wolves cute, and they actually did serve a purpose. I suppose, sure. but jeez, the birds were just there for comic relief. Yes, uh, there are a, mm -hmm. a, a lot of a lot of animals in there, uh, e even to an extent like the guardians of the Jedi Temple or whatever they were. Yeah, they also go completely unremarked upon, except for like, oh, they're there, but like, they're not explored or explained at all. Oh, they're there, and they do labor for Luke, apparently. Like, they're just there taking care of the Jedi Temple, but Luke is the only inhabitant of the island yeah. who's not them. And I don't know how yeah, many Yeah, that was weird as hell. Yeah, I don't know how many walls Luke was fixing. Also, Slam, when Ray was like, I've seen your daily routine. You're not busy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a yeah. lot of humor in this movie. Yes. And, and humor in a way that I don't really think they did in Star Wars before. No, this was a very Marvel movie sort of humor, a lot of times. A bit of it, yeah. Like, like I never imagined that, like, Yoda would have a line like, Hmm, page-turners they are? That's, that's not yeah. the sort of humor I'm used to from a Star Wars movie. I liked it still, but yeah. I mean, it and was it, like, funny. Some of, it just, some of the it was jokes just came out at weird times. Some of the, some of them came out weird. Yeah, kind of like uh, we're talking about the, with the whole Finn and Rose subplot being a lot lighter than the rest of the movie. It it felt like a lot of the jokes were kind of sprinkled in to try to keep things a little light, even while Ray is trying to train in the Force and the. Uh, resistance fleet. I keep trying to say rebel fleet. Same difference. Same difference. Is is running for their lives, and all of these stressful, pretentious events are happening, and also they're cracking jokes every now and then because you know it's a movie. Lighten up. Well, I mean, yeah. that's fine. They did that in the original trilogy too, but the, it was a different sort of different genre. I mean, you know, Leia would insult Han at some point. Yeah. Because he pissed her off. The, well, Le Leia and Han had, like, 1940s banter. Almost. Well, Star Wars was a callback to the 40s serials. Uh, yeah, that too. Now it's a callback to itself. Yes. yes. Well, yeah, we, we, we can get into that if you want now or after the break. You want to get into that? We should have done that in the non-spoiler section. Well, maybe. Because that was a question coming into this movie, because a lot of the criticism of The Force Awakens was centered on how closely it mirrored A New Hope. 
Yeah. And so there was a lot of speculation when, like, the plot of this movie is neophyte desert orphan Jedi searches out for long-missing recluse Jedi master on a mysterious planet we've never seen before to try to get trained in the ways of the Force. Meanwhile, the rest of the galaxy faces its darkest hour at the hands of the Empire. There is some questioning, okay, is this basically going to mirror Empire the way that Force Awakens mirrored New Hope? And it did not! Well, they played... Right, not at all. They played around with those expectations a lot. They set up the whole Ray, I am your brother scene, and then didn't do it. They showed Luke's X-Wing in the water... And never pulled it out. And did not pull it out of the water. They implied that oh, when when perfect. Luke when Luke showed up on the planet later, it's implied, yeah, okay, I just pulled my X wing out, and they play with that one too in a, in a couple of minutes. Yeah, but okay. So I listened to the soundtrack album before we saw the movie, and the soundtrack album has some pretty significant appearances from Yoda's theme. Yes. And then we went to the, see the movie, and I saw that X-Wing in the water, and I thought, okay, it's the empire of this trilogy, they have the big florid arrangement of Yoda's theme, just like they did in Empire when he pulled the X-Wing out of the water, and at some point she's going to convince him he has to go back to the fight, and he pulls his X-Wing out of the water, and they have this big florid arrangement of Yoda's theme. And so, that probably unintentionally, played with my expectations again, because even hearing Yoda's theme on the soundtrack, I did not realize Yoda was going to be in the fucking movie. Yeah, no, they just put Yoda in the fucking movie. No, they put Yoda shows up, and that's where that is. Okay. I was really happy with that, actually. I was worried, and then it was awesome. Yeah, I, I liked that scene. I've seen some people criticize it, but I thought it worked. I mean, like I Me said, too. Yoda sounded, you know, a little more millennial snarky than he did in 1980. But other than that, I thought that scene really worked. I think it's interesting that there's been character growth for Yoda since he died. I think it's interesting that in the ensuing years since his death, he's basically <clears throat> come around to this idea, like Luke has, that, you know, really, it's time for this institution to die. You you can't keep going on for the institution of the Jedi, and now you're a Jedi, and go face the Sith, because now you're a Jedi. You know, like he does right when he dies. In the time since then, he's basically decided, perhaps mulling over everything that happened in the prequels, when every single thing the Jedi tried to do ended in miserable failure, yeah. that, yeah, maybe this isn't an institution worth carrying a flame for. Maybe the flaws of our institution are interfering with the actual importance of the Force and using the Force for good. And the balance that everyone claims to seek. I never quite understood the whole point of the balance. I mean, we, what is the balance? You need to have the hero and the villain. You need to have the savior and the exterminator of worlds. You can't, like, live uh, without the evil. <laughs> you need opposing forces to make energy. I think they kind of touch on that. I mean, it's thesis and antithesis, isn't it? Hmm, sure. I think the galaxy could survive without the genocidal fascist Sith Lord. I really think that's a thing they could figure out how to do. Well, yes. Yes. 
hopefully we all could survive without those. I think where it's going is that Rey has to find more of an integration where the dark side isn't something to be afraid of, it's just something to kind of peacefully resist. What the Jedi did when they were the ascendant military force in the galaxy was to use their supposed inner peace to kill all sense of joy, much like the prequels killed all sense of joy. <laughs> and that was ultimately their undoing, because Anakin could not give up his great love and all of this stuff. And, you know, he wanted to feel his feelings and live his life, and the Jedi were too ascetic to allow anyone to do that. They, they, as an institution, they were staid and, and stodgy in that way. And what Luke did as a reaction to the dark side kind of uh, reaching back into his life with Kylo Ren was to withdraw entirely and go back to sort of an ascetic lifestyle where he's closed off from all contact. He's, he's closed off from everything. And I think what, what there has to be is a balance between a completely placid, like, flatten your entire psyche and call it peace, and the sort of inner chaos and forceful emotions that you have to tap into to use the dark side. There has to be an integration there where uh, joy and, and, and fear and, and other emotions all exist, but you have control of them. Basically, someone who uses the Force at some point has to figure out what every therapist wants a person to try to make in their lives. That There has to be some balance between these different urges and emotions. See, I thought that's what Luke did in Return of the Jedi. Because he basically gives in to the dark side when he's fighting Vader, when Vader threatens Leia. Luke basically says, fuck it, and goes berserker on him, and beats him down and cuts his hand off. And then he realizes what he's doing, and he stops himself. And he says, no, that's bad, that's wrong, I'm not going to do that. And even Vader, after 30 years of galactic genocidal fascism, Vader sort of decides, wait, okay, this is wrong. I can make a different choice. I can turn away from what I've been doing and try to make some tiny, minuscule iota of amends. I can try to fix some of these horrible mistakes I've made. I can turn away from the dark side. I, it's not a permanent choice. I thought that's what Luke figured out, that, you know, it's not like a fixed, universal thing, are you dark or are you light, that... Being light isn't a thing you are, it's a thing you choose. You have the dark impulses, but you don't give in to them. And when you do give in to them, you stop yourself and you don't give in to them again. It's not like a universal choice. That's sort of the way it, it looks like in Episode 3, where like as soon as Anakin gives in to his dark impulse one time, he just completely gives the fuck up of ever doing anything good again and just surrenders himself to city. It's like, well, I did one dark thing. I guess I'm a dark lord of the Sith now. Time to go murder children. Yeah. Whereas Luke does one dark thing and then stops himself and says, no, that's not what I want to be doing. 
and makes a different choice. And yet somehow, somewhere in the intervening years, he's lost that perspective that the dark and the light are choices you make and not like, not like one single choice you make at one time and then cast the die for the entire rest of your existence. But it's a constant choice you make every second of every day. Am I going to give in to my darkest impulses or am I going to try to achieve good and proper things? It's choices that you make all the time, every day, every hour. And somehow Luke loses that perspective because when he realizes that Kylo is going dark, he doesn't say, I need to convince him otherwise. I need to turn him back to the light the way I did with Anakin. He instead says, I need to kill Hitler in his crib. And then when that fails... He gives up everything and says, okay, I'll just lock myself away from the galaxy. I don't want to be involved in any of this ever again. And so what Rey is doing is basically what what Yoda helps Luke realize, and then what Rey is sort of doing, not really at Luke's behest, because they don't really have contact after the Yoda conversation with Luke, but sort of what Rey takes away from her interactions with Luke, and then what Yoda finishes explaining to Luke, is what I thought Luke had figured out in Return of the Jedi. Hmm. You know, Rey goes to the dark side cave because she's curious, and then she sees something there, and then she comes back. You know? She goes to meet with Kylo... And then when Kylo says, you know, okay, we killed the leader, now we can be the leaders, we can rule this genocidal fascist empire, she says, no, that's bad, I don't want to do that. She chooses to not do that. She doesn't just say, well, I did one dark thing, I guess I'm evil now. She chooses not to do more dark, evil things. So she's basically just like... I guess maybe it's the next step, but it's also sort of reclaiming an achievement that Luke had made in Return of the Jedi. That apparently Luke forgot at some point, or Luke lost at some point, or Luke turned his back on because of his failure with Kylo Ren. And now Rey is sort of, you know, taking up that mantle. I don't think it's that Luke forgot the truth of the situation, it's that he determined he wasn't the man for the job because his failure was so profound. Yeah, maybe Luke's moment, however long that moment is, depending on who you believe, but Luke's moment where he decided to kill Kylo rather than risk him going dark maybe convinced Luke, I'm not capable of choosing between the dark and the light. I can't be trusted to make that choice. Yeah, and it spiraled out of control so rapidly from that moment of weakness. And and I think it's also a nice illustration of the human consideration of what you're afraid something will cost and then what that fear causes something to actually cost. Because there was so much collateral damage in his mishandling of Kylo um, that I think he didn't even consider when he was afraid of what was going to happen just with Kylo. And uh, I think that really shocked him. Um, really shocked him. I, I had that I had that reflection after The Force Awakens too of just how unbelievably heartbreaking um alienating um, just would cause a huge identity crisis crisis of confidence to have someone that you were training and coaching do something like that because even if kylo was defending himself and he may well have been why is the rest of his jedi class dead 
Luke was unconscious in the rubble of Kylo's dormitory, you know, Kylo wasn't defending himself when he killed everyone else. Well, it looks like Kylo basically... I wouldn't say he's as bad as Anakin in that moment, but sort of the way that Anakin, as soon as Anakin made, like, one single momentary choice to protect Palpatine against the Jedi, and then at that point basically just, like, gave up ever making a moral choice ever again and did whatever evil thing Palpatine told him to because, whoops, I'm dark, I guess I'm just going to be unrepentantly evil forever now. Kylo appears to have basically done the same thing, where, like, when he thought Luke was trying to kill him, he basically said, oh, well, fuck this, I guess Snoke is right about everything, I'm gonna kill everyone now. Yeah, you're right, I forgot about the hotline to Snoke. Snoke's definitely driving the bus when Kylo's young like that. Well, Snoke was already trying to influence him, and Snoke had obviously put ideas into yeah. his head, who knows how true or yeah. false those ideas were, but... I guess waking up and seeing Luke over him seemingly about to murder him in his sleep basically was confirmation for Kylo that, yeah, everything Snoke is telling me is true and everything that Luke and my parents have tried to tell me is bullshit. Nice. On that delightful note, <laughs> uh, let's take a quick break and see what else is on this podcast feed. Uh, before we come back and talk about uh, the other big plot line that we haven't gotten into completely and just what the future holds after so much movie. Uh, we will see you on the other side. Consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the pro wrestling only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place Simulations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySimulation.com. And we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. 
The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlaceMination.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceMination.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryWrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceMation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Welcome back. <laughs> God, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> Buy one, get one. KFC Porgs. Aww. Sorry. <laughs> it literally looked delicious, though. I was, I was sad that Joey couldn't eat it. Yeah, I mean, he already killed it. Is it really worse to eat, go ahead and eat it now? It's not like he's going to like leave it unharmed. Yeah. I don't know, was that like when people watch videos about animal abuse and, and go vegetarian? Like, did Chewie have a big change of heart there? Or is he just not gonna eat anything that's, like, actually looking at him with big, sad cat eyes? I still say he already killed the thing. There, there's literally no loss to eating it now. Can I ask a question about Chewbacca, though? All right, this is basically unrelated to everything else, but... How the fuck long do Wookiees live? A while. Because <laughs> uh... we saw Chewbacca in Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. I looked this up. Revenge of the Sith is 19 years before New Hope. Mm-hmm. The Last Jedi is 34 years after New Hope. Okay. That means we've seen Chewbacca over a 53-year time span, and he has never changed the way he looks. He's basically looked identical 
for 53 years. He was already a fully grown adult 53 years ago. That puts him in his mid-70s now. Yeah. Well, it you could know, be a long life, people. They, they did show a little bit in The Force Awakens that he had lost a step. Like, he didn't get injured a lot in the trilogy. Chewbacca is so old that Peter Mayhew can't even play him anymore. They have a new Chewbacca actor because the actor is too old to be Chewbacca. Oh, I didn't know that. They have a new Chewbacca? Yeah, you didn't know that? Oh, yeah. No. It's, uh, look up the IMDb page. I don't remember the dude's name. It's, uh, I think he's, like, Swedish or something. His name is, like, Junis or something. Yeah. I read something that, like, apparently they were, like, splitting the role. Like, some scenes have Peter Mayhew and other scenes have the new Swedish guy. But in the cast, it only lists the new Swedish guy. Peter Mayhew is not part of the cast. Oh, man. Uh, Yunas Suotamo. Sure. Okay. So, like, do Wookiees just naturally live for, like, 200 years? Because... I, I, su- I suppose. Why not? Must... Um, all right, we got to move along a little bit here. Let's talk finally about Ray. We talked about balancing the Force and all that, but what do we make of Ray's training sessions and her pursuit of Luke and her uh, teleconferencing with Kylo? Uh, what what do we make of her journey in in this movie? I love it forever. Fair. <laughs> Don't expand on that. Please. Please. (laughs) She's very um, earnest as a character, and I like it because for some reason I don't read her as naive. She somehow manages to be earnest without being naive, even though she's so morally pure. There's some kind of intellectualism that she brings to it that she's not... like. I don't think that she has any illusions about how dark the world actually is, especially, you know, living on Jakku the way that she did and seeing the machinations of the First Order all around her. She just personally has a true North moral compass. And if you're not able to be as true North as she is, she's certainly judging you. But she's never surprised, I think, by how dark the world is. So for some reason, that particular combination of operating system really appeals to me I, I i like her a lot and i enjoy watching her learn about the world and i think it was a difficult writing challenge to have a good answer to the question that luke poses which is like who are you and why are you here and she gives a very earnest response um something is awake which is a direct callback to the previous film the title of the previous film in fact and that that should be so on the nose as to be hokey but instead she her line readings there are very, very light and quiet and thoughtful. And I really feel that she's doing her best to explain. Um, she's not actually trying to convince him to do anything. To like, She's not answering to try to convince him to teach her. She's genuinely trying to answer the question to the best of her ability. And there's something about that that's very winning and very genuine. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of her. And I like, I like how much she doesn't manipulate others. Because if she is the yin to Kylo Ren's yang, she could manipulate people. We've seen her use the the force influence on people in, in the Starkiller base. Like she could so easily do that and manipulate things as Kylo does and chooses not to. So I'm very moved by that as well. And then um, watching her 
just stay the course in the face of many different threats and temptations just really satisfies me. I think she carries it well. I don't know. She's very watchable. And Daisy, I think, does a great job acting it. So yeah, I love Ray forever. (laughs) The whole Ray storyline of this movie is very much... Like, I don't want to say it this way because it sounds sort of condescending, but I don't know the right word to use, but sort of the maturation process of Rey. Because in the last movie, she spent literally the entire movie saying, I have to get back to Jakku because, you know, my parents are going to show up one day and I don't want to be missing. Yeah. Like, literally until, like, the last five minutes of the movie, that's all she's trying to do is get back to Jakku. And in this movie, she moves beyond that. And she acknowledges how ridiculous and pie in the sky that belief was. And she's able to move beyond it and move into very much sort of a maturation or coming of age or whatever you want to call it, where she's sort of moving past that portion of her life and very much becoming this new person who has force ability and wants to explore it and wants to know the truth and goes to the First Order command ship because she wants to, you know, learn the truth and she wants to connect with this other Force user who's, you know, the only other one that she knows of at the moment. She wants to connect with this other Force user. She wants to explore the Force and use it for good, and she thinks she can convince him to explore it with her and use it for good. And then when she fails, she doesn't, like, linger on that or dwell on that. She just moves on and comes back in time to help rescue everyone. It's very much a growth, like, personally a growth of her character and a growth of her as a person where she's moving beyond her more childish impulses and more fully embracing everything involved in who she is as a person and where she belongs in the galaxy. Yeah. And I like when she's in the cave trying to answer the question in her head. Her question is who are my parents? She wants to see them. But I think the I think the deep the question behind the question I think is why am I powerful? And then when she when she approaches the mirror and sees only herself, there's a bunch of different ways to interpret that. But the one that I the one that I enjoy is that her force ability is 100% disconnected from everyone else's force ability. She doesn't have it for any particular reason, um, and that means that it's completely hers to shape she herself must determine how she steps into the story. She's not fulfilling like a quest. It's down to her. That could be intimidating to such a degree as to make somebody do nothing or turn away, but she keeps moving instead. And I also admire that like by the end of the force awakens or actually from the middle onward, because like when, when Kylo and Ray encounter each other in the forest in the force awakens, Kylo says the girl I've heard so much about, and that should, that should be freaking terrifying. Like that's terrifying. Cause like, who is she? She lived on an, on an outer rim planet by herself. And I think she like recognizes that being the object of someone like Kylo Ren's obsession, like she's got to get ready. She can't ignore that forever. It's kind of, it actually kind of reminds me of the Harry Potter story. Like Voldemort's obsession with Harry gives Harry significance. It's this. It's sort of a similar thing for Ray. Kylo Ren and Snoke's obsession with Ray give Ray a job to do. 
I think the question she's searching for answers to, I mean, when she she goes to the cave trying to find out, you know, who were my parents? Where did I come from? The question she's, like, really asking is, who am I? Right. You know? And the answer that she winds up getting is basically your you you're not your parents you're not your old home you're not your history you're whatever you make of yourself and it's basically a parallel of like we said before of what kylo said and what luke also said that you know you're not your history you're not where you came from you are not your past who you are is who you make of yourself exactly uh, that's why I had such a problem, like we were talking about a little while ago, with, with the assumption that she has to be a Skywalker, or she has to be a Kenobi or something. No, she can just be herself. You are who you make yourself through the choices that you make. That's what Finn is. That, right. That's what that's what Rey is. You... There, <laughs> there is no that's fate what but what we make for ourselves. You could make the same argument about some of the other characters. That's what Leia is. Yeah. Because other people that came up in circumstances similar to what Leia is, other people who had the same, you know... Are at that casino. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. That I couldn't figure out quite how to phrase it. But yeah, you know, if you're born into a super wealthy family in an affluent aristocratic position and you have all this money, you could be at that casino. But instead, she's leading this ragtag resistance movement. You... Choose what to make of yourself. That is a common lesson, but one that I think is still lovely. And then that sort of gets back into the whole Kylo, Luke, Anakin stuff I was talking about before. That, you know, you are what you choose to be. Yeah. And that's not set in stone. You can change your choices. And you can make new, better choices. And if your preconceived notion is that you fall within this family and you have to follow in the line of this family... Then you come to adulthood as a Darth Vader fanboy. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. It's sort of ironic that Kylo is saying, let go of the past, burn the past, kill the past, and meanwhile he, like, worships Darth Vader's dented mask. Uh, I think he came into that later. Like, I think he's maturing, too. Yeah, that might have been another way that that Snoke was manipulating him, because he does... When when he's tearing him down before he builds him up, he calls out, you know, you'll never be as good as Darth Vader. You think you're great, but you're not that great, to say. <laughs> um, so, I mean, he may have come to that through through Snoke, but it's still using that family ancestry as an entry point. When what we see in Ray's story and Finn's story and others is that you are what you make yourself. Yeah. All right, um, let's talk a little bit about just where in the hell Episode Nine can go after all of this, because this was a lot of plot and a lot of advancement, and if we might have gone in expecting a lot of the Empire Strikes Back events to, you know, rhyme as history does, uh, we got a lot of the Return of the Jedi events, too. The uh, Snoke is gone. Luke is gone. I don't think we mentioned that yet. Luke is one with the Force now. In just a beautiful shot with the cinematography and and the music when he was fading away literally into the sunset. That was just a beautiful thing. Yeah. It was beautiful. But, Scott, you and I said when we were walking out of the theater that what the end of that movie set up was another 30-year time jump. 
Yeah. Because the, the You resist- need time for all of these kids that are telling each other stories. You need time for them to grow up enough to join this new rebellion. You need to rebuild the rebellion from a couple of dozen people on one single freighter to, like, something that could actually be called a rebellion. Yeah. That is basically what they were setting up. I mean, the whole point of having those kids is those kids are going to grow up to resist the First Order. Well, you need them to grow up if they're going to do that. Yeah, I mean, Poe talks about being uh, the spark that lights the flame that burns the First Order down, which is a beautiful contrast, I think, to... Um, was it Admiral Holdo's line or Leia's line about being a spark of hope for people? Because one is constructive and the other is destructive. They're talking about, you know, being a a spark of hope for people to positively attach to, whereas Poe is talking about literally destruction. We need to burn these fuckers down. Yeah, well, Holdo was talking about reigniting the Republic. Yeah. Like, we're going to rebuild the Republic, where the Republic has failed twice in the last 60 years. Yeah. Like, maybe we need to try something new. Whereas Poe is sort of more directly, you know, he's sort of the action person, he's sort of more directly addressing it, we're going to destroy our oppressors. So, what you'd think the end is setting up is another 30-year time jump where suddenly Rey is as old and and experienced as General Organa, or thereabouts. But, obviously, Episode Nine is going to star Oscar Isaac and John Boyega and Daisy Ridley. (laughs) Also, there is no way in hell that the whole thing with Kylo and Hux in the First Order stays stable for 30 years for us to pick up the story later. Something's going to blow up there soon. So, Alana, what do you think about, after everything that's happened in here, like, what this might be setting up, like, what are the directions that Episode Nine can go? You know, I'm kind of nicely baffled. I don't think they ruled anything in or out. Because, you know, Luke can be a Force ghost, so we might see him some more. We got to see what they do with Leia. We got to see what will happen. Like, what will happen with Rey? She's about to have another type of temptation, which is what happens when you're the focus of a small group's, like, unabashed, unequivocated admiration. Will that change her at all? Yeah, Will there be she... an arrogance to it uh, now that she has survived not only an, an untrained encounter with Kylo, but she is now witnessed and brought down Snoke. She's a survivor, and she's now the last Jedi. Like, what, what will happen to her? Is she going to hold it gracefully? Is she going to be as arrogant as Luke was in the beginning of The Return of the Jedi? What, we, what will happen? We talked earlier about how Poe's storyline in this movie was about preparing him to take on a leadership position. What right. in the history of Ray has ever prepared her to take on a leadership position? Right, exactly. What what is going to happen there? Yeah. I, I don't know. Kylo and Ray are clearly not done with each other. Also, is their force bond severed now that Snoke is dead? They didn't address it one way or the other. I kind of hope it's not for personal reasons. I think probably Snoke was making the bond for them. But for them to kind of open it up again, one or the other of them would have to intentionally do it. Well, they have that scene right at the end when they all escape, where the way the camera flips back and forth, 
it makes it look like Kylo and Rey are staring at each other up and down the gangplank of the Millennium Falcon, mm. but yes. Kylo is near the blast door that they knocked the hole in, and the Falcon is at the top of a ridge at the back end of the cave where they, like, spelunked their way to the back exit. So they're not actually in line of sight. Right. Interesting. I didn't catch that. That's a good detail. I don't think Hux is making it out alive of... uh of the next one. Uh, no, I, I think a lot of the uh, First Order folks are, are not going to. Yeah, something's going to happen with Kylo and Hux and, and the leadership of the First Order a lot sooner than the implied time jump that the Rebel storyline would imply. Also, Kylo might fucking defect. I mean, I realize his title is now Supreme Leader, but I think it depends on what the truth is, right? So that's that's one of the things that is up in the air because... He has what appears to be a very genuine conversation with Rey as they're standing among the the bodies of the whatever the protectors of Snoke are called. It starts with the P, I forget. But they they kill all those red armored guys, and they're having the conversation. And Kylo offers Rey a place by his side, and she is refusing. And I think that's the truth. I think that's what he really wanted, but it's not clear because. Hux enters the scene and Ray has escaped and obviously knocked Kylo out. P.S. Sorry, dude. Like, <laughs> she... <laughs> don't take your eyes off her. She will fucking knock you out. And anyway, he his his immediate thing is to pin the death of Snoke on her. Um, I was surprised actually to hear him say that. I thought he would tell Hux that he fucking did it, but he didn't, which was so weird. It was such an odd choice because who would he get in trouble with? Snoke is dead. But then, like, he does focus on the fact that Snoke is dead. And there's like that like one second scramble for power that Hux immediately loses. I don't know. It was just it was so weird. But did that mean that Kylo was performing some shit for Rey? Is he still thinking that Rey is his mortal enemy? Like the rage that he focuses on Rey is as though it, she was responsible for the death of Snoke. Um, how does he feel about the death of Snoke? I actually don't know this either. Is it relief? Is it terror? Is it grief? What happened? I don't even, I don't even know. Like we, we, he he hasn't had a chance to catch his breath. I think either way that Kylo winds up going in episode 9, he's gotta die. Oh, probably. <laughs> you can't... I mean, it's like Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi. You can't have Vader turn face, essentially, and then live at the end of the movie, because then episode 7 is the Truth and Reconciliation War Crimes Tribunal of Darth Vader. You know, Kylo Ren, even if he defects, even if he, like, commands the First Order to stand down and there's another struggle for power and Hux orders them to keep going and then Kylo has to help destroy them or whatever, you can't have him still alive at the end of the movie because then you have to have the War Crimes Tribunal of Kylo Ren. Yeah, if he survives, he has to serve his 30,000-year prison sentence. Yeah, I mean, you can't... At, at this point, I think I probably trust these movies enough to not just have Kylo Ren turn good and then have Rey, like, forgive him and, like, try to envelop him in the light side of the Force because that's too simplistic for what they've been doing so far. Isn't that and exactly what Rey was trying to do in this movie, though? I think she was just trying to get him to stop. <laughs> and, you know, we think about what we do after that later. <laughs> you know, but she can't forgive him for all the people that he's murdered personally and as part of the First Order, because she's not in a position to do that. Yeah. Nobody is, really. I mean, we could go into war criminals a lot, I guess, but... Yow. 
Uh, so I guess I, what I want to say is thanks for not fucking it up, Brian Johnson. I was nervous for you and I was pleased. Shout out to the cast because I think the performances are great across the board. Um, yeah, Mark Hamill except, stepped it except, up. He really did. Actually, yeah, quick little PS before I close my little book on eight. I thought that that little last act was fucking immaculate. It was so powerful it was powerful when he showed up it was powerful when he walked out there and then when they cut to do that gorgeous reveal that he is basically still meditating on space ireland and he has now achieved a level of power that is transcendent and that is what he is doing with it it was just gorgeous i was in tears i thought it was perfect all right before we get out of here let's talk quickly about the score for this movie as we like to do for all of these things Scott, have we gotten to the point where we can take John Williams' Star Wars scores for granted again? Well, it's basically mirrors the reaction to the movie as a whole, right? Where, like, we're all excited for a new John Williams Star Wars score for Phantom Menace, and then what we got was a John Williams score of the late 90s, which is not at all really in the style of his scores for like Star Wars and Superman and stuff like that. And so then with Force Awakens it was basically the same thing as I hope it's good, but you know, look at the prequels. But it turned out to be really good. He sort of was able to tap back into that sort of Star Wars mode that he had in the late 70s and early 80s and produced a score that was very much in that vein. And so the fact that he did again is Again, less revelatory, if not less enjoyable. I don't know. I'm feeling a little bit of, uh... I suppose I'm feeling a little bit of malaise about it. Well, this score is sort of unusual in that every other Star Wars movie had, like, one new theme that was, like, featured. Heavily featured in the score, and there was, like, a concert suite on the album... You know, Princess Leia's theme, the Imperial March, the forest battle, whatever Mishigas they did in the prequels, you know, the love theme. The love theme was great, come on. The Force Awakens had a lot of new themes, but the one that got the suite on the album was Ray's theme, and I guess the Resistance March too, but... Yeah. This movie didn't really have that. Like, the only new theme in this movie is the Rose theme, which basically sounds like a more playful Cloud City theme. See, yeah, you went to, to Cloud City, and that's that's interesting. My mind immediately went to Harry Potter. Because really? it feels like a warm, kind of family movie theme. And I guess Rose is not quite as bubbly and happy as the theme kind of implies, but I guess a little more positive than some of the other characters in the movie. See, I thought it was it had that same sort of, like, lyrical lilting quality of the Cloud City theme. It was just like a more fun version of it. Yeah, it is It is a very fun, light theme, and it gets some good arrangements in the movie and on the album. It is sort of incongruous for that, because it's so lilting and lyrical, and because it sounds fun. Yeah. It sort of contributes when they're like trying to escape on these hairless tauntauns, and they're like helping the slave children or whatever... It is sort of incongruous with the tone of the rest of the movie where, like, the Resistance fleet is being obliterated and they're riding these animals and there's this fun theme playing, like, you know, ha-ha fun times. It does contribute to the incongruous feeling of that entire sequence. 
I do suppose that, given the course of the movie, it follows that there obviously wouldn't be as many new uh, kind of themes and ideas in the music as there was in The Force Awakens, because, of course, in The Force Awakens, you had, you know, for a large part, a new cast of, of characters. You know, you needed something for Rey and for the First Order and, and for the Resistance and for Poe and Kylo and, and, and everything, and they got, you know, a whole suite of new musical ideas that fit so well in the Star Wars universe. Like, I still can't really get over how well Rey's theme in particular fits as Star Wars music specifically. And it's a little underwhelming, you know, to, to have Rose's theme, which is a, a decent enough theme on its own, but I don't think it really fits in the Star Wars milieu as well as, as some of the other uh, themes from The Force Awakens. And while I appreciate that there are so many uses of the older themes from The Force Awakens and from the original trilogy, there is a lot of Kylo's theme and motifs and, and all of the ideas associated with Kylo. There's quite a bit of Rey's theme. There is a lot of the Force theme in this movie. It doesn't feel like there are all that many innovative variations on them. And maybe that's unfair, because we've had the Force theme for 40 years now. Yeah. So, I understand that that might be unfair. <laughs> One thing I noticed, listening to the CD, especially because I've only seen the movie the once... There isn't, like, the standout track on the CD. Mm. Like, all of the other soundtracks, there's that one track where you go to, like, yes, this is incredible, I need to listen to this a lot. If it's, like, Binary Sunset, or the Battle of Yavin, or the Imperial March, or the Clash of the Lightsabers, or the Final Duel in Jedi, or the Forest Battle, or the, you know, the Space Battle, the... Especially the forced battle Ewok music and the end of it when they're blowing up the Death Star. Yeah. Through the flames, that track is really good. The throne room, the, uh, yeah. Even the prequels had their, you know, showcase themes, if you like that Duel of the Fates and Battle of the Heroes and, the, again, the love theme from Attack of the Clones. And Force Awakens has Rey's theme and the Resistance March. This CD doesn't really have one of those. No, not really. I mean, it's it's fine enough music. It just doesn't have, like you say, that signature theme and that signature track that really kind of punches you in the face and makes you really lock into it. Yeah, it doesn't have that one track that punches you in the face and says, listen to me, I am the best thing you've ever heard. I think it's also worth noting you brought up the prequel scores. One of the things that he did in the prequels, John Williams, was to kind of abandon a lot of his themes as the prequels went on. One of the big elements of the Phantom Menace score was Anakin's theme, which is in Attack of the Clones a couple times, maybe? Yeah. And I don't remember it in Revenge of the Sith off the top of my head. I'd have to revisit that score, which I'm not going to. But, um, no, it's fine. I don't mean to... It's better than the movie. They're all better than the movies, but still. They're still very disappointing compared to the original trilogy scores. Yes. 
Yeah, he would make these new themes for for each movie, but they would be concentrated in that movie. Like, Anakin's theme doesn't flow through the entire prequel trilogy the way that it might. And the love theme recurs a few times in, in Revenge of the Sith, but it's not really as much of a driving force as, as opposed to some of the other ideas that are introduced. And in the film, frankly, you know, half of it is tracked in from the previous movies anyway. I mean, the blockade runner cue from Phantom Menace, which is one of those signature cues from that score, is in literally all three prequels. <laughs> Verbatim. Yeah, but it's really awesome where they used it in Attack of the Clones. <laughs> yeah, fair. All right. That's, that's, that's decent musical spotting, That may be the best musical moment in Attack of the Clones. <sighs> you might be right, actually. <laughs> and I think it's worth pointing out that this sequel trilogy, if, if, if you want to call it, uh, isn't like that. The themes from The Force Awakens are brought back heavily and relied upon to signify all of the new events that, that are happening with the characters that they're assigned to. Well, yeah, this score is, like I said, there's only Rose's theme as a new theme in this movie. So this yeah. score is like almost entirely Force Awakens themes and a few original trilogy themes. You know, one thing that I noticed that I definitely want to make note of, Luke has basically lost his theme. Oh, he lost his theme by the middle of The Empire Strikes Back. No, they still use the theme for him sometimes in Jedi. Mm, I don't remember them really using it for him in Jedi. In Empire, it's still for him when he's at Echo Base, at the beginning of Empire. Uh, the B phrase of his theme is used a little bit. Uh, and when he's going out on the Tauntaun and all that. But after that, he pretty much loses his theme. Luke's in a lot of this movie, and there's like two places I noticed that actually use Luke's theme to signify Luke. Yeah. There's like a little bit of it in the spark, the track from when he and Leia are talking in the base. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of it when the kid is using his doll to tell the story of the last Jedi at the very end of the movie. Yes. Other than that, I don't hear Luke's theme other than in the titles. Like, Luke has lost his theme. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, in, in The Force Awakens, Luke's theme was used during the trench run, which was recalling, you know, previous uses of Luke's theme for Luke <laughs> in, in, in New Hope, so... <laughs> Uh, that scene where he's talking to Leia at the base, by the way, with a really nice return of the Luke and Leia theme from Jedi. It's a really slow, emotional version of that theme, which was written for Return of the Jedi and not used particularly much in that movie, but a couple of times. Yeah, I never noticed that until you mentioned it to me. You're right, they never really used that theme again. Did they use it in Revenge of the Sith when the twins were born? That would have been the only time, logical time I could think of that they would have used it. No, I'm. I don't think so. So, but yeah, that was that was pretty cool. That track it might be the best track on the disc. Yeah, there's I, a lot of really interesting stuff in there. I really like the end of that track too, as Luke walks out onto the battlefield. I guess there's this really exciting kind of building material that almost sounds like it's about to launch into the Imperial March and then doesn't. It sort of sounds like some of the prequel music where they were, like, building to the Imperial March, you know? Yeah, some of the, uh, 
the way the brass is used in that, yeah. and the way it builds up over the course of it, sounds a lot like some of the more uh, momentous cues from the prequels, too, yeah. Uh, there, there are some other, you know, kind of prominent uses of older themes you may not necessarily have expected. Uh, we talked about Yoda's theme before. During one of the scenes with Supreme Leader Snoke trying to seduce or get information from or intimidate Rey, uh, there's a pretty prominent use of the Emperor's theme. Yeah, definitely. I really liked the way that Leia's theme was used in this movie, too. Leia's theme was in this movie a lot. It, it was a lot, um, especially when she is explosively decompressed and kind of pulling herself back to the ship. There's this really grand use of her theme in a way that it wasn't used a lot before. So that I found really, really impressive. And, of course, at the end credits for the title card for Carrie Fisher, it's reduced to this very simple, very plain kind of piano version. I mean, it was nice to, it was nice to hear some, some, of, some of these themes. I, I could listen to the Force theme for days. Yes. And with eight scores now, I pretty much could. Although well, the f- nine now with Rogue One, but you know. Although the Force theme, it always kind of gets cut off at the end, you know? They always play like the first half of it, the first three quarters of it. It's a very long melody, and a lot of scenes aren't very long anymore in movies. Yeah, I suppose. That is sort of my main impression of this entire score. Is that, I mentioned earlier, there isn't like a theme suite, like Across the Stars, or Leia's theme, or the Imperial March. But there really isn't any place in this score, at least that I heard on the CD, or that I remember from the movie, that just like plays a theme for a while. Everything is very short bursts. Everything is like, you know, a little bit to underscore what's going on, but it doesn't like dwell on it. I think that might be an effect of modern movie making techniques, just the way movies are constructed and edited, especially big CGI action blockbusters where effects are coming in very late and a lot of things change in editing. And so I think the music has to be a little more modular and a little more... It has to be able to be needle-dropped a little bit. But, like, even the end credits suite... Oh, yeah. The end credits of Star Wars has a set formula. You play the main theme, there's a little bit of Rebel fanfare, maybe some more main theme, you have, like, the main one or two or maybe three themes from the film, and then you come back to Luke's theme at the end. They did that... Even in the prequels, they didn't vary that formula much. They concentrated a little more on the new themes. They maybe didn't come back to Luke's theme at the end. But even in Force Awakens, it was very formulaic. It was main theme. It was Kylo's theme. It was Rey's theme. It was Resistance March. It was back to the main theme at the end. In this one, they don't dwell on anything for more than 20 or 30 seconds in the entirety of like a six minutes credit suite. Yeah, it's a little broken up. I mean, all of it sounds good for the 20 or 30 seconds, but there's no, like, exploration or repetition or just no ability to just, like, dwell in a theme and say, yes, this theme. Even Luke's theme at the beginning of the end credits... I have a bone to pick with these end credits. Because even Luke's theme at the beginning of the end credits is rushed through extremely. Uh, They shortened that section of the beginning of the end credits for the prequels, and if I recall correctly, they replicated that shortened version for The Force Awakens, but I think the version in The Last Jedi is even shorter, and even more rushed. It's very short. So that did not sit particularly well for me. 
And then, as much as I like the piano arrangement of Princess Leia's theme, it comes in rather abruptly. Like, the end credits has Luke's theme, followed by a little bit of Rose's theme, but then that can't go on for more than, like, a minute or so, because everything has to stop for the Carrie Fisher title card. And even then, like you say, the ideas aren't really dwelled on enough. In the end credits, which should be the one place, even if every scene is short and things are moving around in the editing so maybe you don't have five minutes to dwell on a theme during the course of the movie but you should in the credits there's also i noticed a couple of times in the credits where it sounded like it was building to something and then it didn't like there's this beat in the credits that sounds like it's building up to the resistance march but they don't actually play the resistance march and then toward the end of the credit suite, they play that sort of, like, rolling thunder that normally is what leads into the resumption of Luke's theme, except they don't resume Luke's theme, they just move on to something else. Yeah, that end credit suite was a little perplexing. I mean, it's all good to listen to, but there's nothing there, like I said, to really dwell on. It's, it's all, like, 20, 30 seconds of this and then that and then this and then that. It's not like other complaints I've made before, where it's 20 seconds of something good and then three minutes of dreck. It's all good stuff, but it's all little bursts of good stuff. Yeah, it's definitely a little, uh... I don't want to say disappointing. I just have kind of a malaise about it. It's still really good, but it's not at the level we've come to expect from at least four of the Star Wars movies. <laughs> A significant amount of good stuff, but still. The prequel scores are better than the prequel movies. And the prequels and credits fit the formula that I talked about before, where they dwell on these themes for a minute or two or three. This one didn't, for whatever reason. And I don't know why, and it's disappointing, frankly. Yeah, a little bit. Um, do you want to do a quick ranking off the top of your head? The Star Wars scores? Are we including Rogue One? Yeah. Are we including Ewok's Battle for Endor? I have that score. I'm not intimately familiar with it. They released that, really? I was uh, going to make a joke about La La Land doing a two-disc version next year, but they already... I mean, I mean well, La La Land wouldn't because it's all owned by Disney. The Entrada label would have to do that. Oh, wow. Well, actually, actually, no, because the old Caravan of Courage Battle for Endor combo release... I'm not sure if it was even put out on CD. I know it was a record. Uh, it was put out by Vares Sarah Band, so they might have exclusive rights on it. They get perpetuity rights for a lot of the things they release, um, especially in the 90s, but some from the 80s as well. Yeah. Did you want to go down this rabbit hole? Because I can play. Can you? <laughs> How many CDs have they released of the Clone Wars? I've heard of at least two. Well, there's the one for the Clone Wars movie that they put out, and then there was a digital uh, release on iTunes and I think Amazon MP3 for seasons one through six. Didn't Kevin Kiner do those? Or was that... Yeah. All right. Are we, are we including Rogue One? Yes. So you want to rank the eight? Uh, uh, the nine. What's the ninth? Well, this was episode eight. Oh, you're right. I can't count. <sighs> okay. Let me think for a minute. Well, I can do mine. We'll do yours second. Okay. I'm thinking for a minute. <laughs> okay. Number one is Return of the Jedi. Okay. I think number two is Empire. Uh-huh. 
I mean, Star Wars gets bonus points for originality and because it came first and because it was the pioneer, but if we're ranking them solely on what would I want to listen to now as something to listen to now and not on how important it was historically or how innovative it was compared to the rest of the series, but just solely on what do I want to listen to now, I would go Jedi and then Empire and then Star Wars. Where would I slot in the I mean, rest? I mean, I understand that for the original trilogy because there's such a cohesive whole that each one adds more exactly. on the last. Empire, there's like stuff missing compared to Jedi. There's like themes that are explored in Jedi more than they are in Empire because they're introduced in Empire. Or they're explored more in Empire because they're introduced in New Hope and the later exploration is more interesting to listen to than the initial introduction. I mean, if you're talking about, like, which ones were the best, greatest achievement or something like that, you'd have to give credit to the originator. But if you're talking about what do I want to listen to now, I want to listen to the later development. So that would be my ranking of the original trilogy. Where would I slot in Force Awakens and Rogue One in comparison to those? I'm, I really like Ray's theme. And the more I listen to it, the more I like the Resistance March. Although, again, the Resistance March is explored a little more in The Last Jedi. Although not in, like, long form, but in little bursts, it's explored a lot more and varied a lot more in Last Jedi than it is in Force Awakens. Yeah, the uses in the battle at the beginning of the movie, I thought, were particularly nice. Yeah. So, what's in New Hope? It's just Luke's theme, the Force theme, Binary Sunset, Battle well, of Yavin. Well, that was back when the Force theme was Obi-Wan's theme. He lost his before Luke did. I don't know. They used Obi-Wan's theme for Binary Sunset before Obi-Wan was ever on camera, so... Yeah, well that, well, that was when he was, you know, yearning to leave. And who helped him leave? I don't think I would put Rogue One ahead of any of the original trilogy. I like the themes in Rogue One, but they don't have any of the weight of the original trilogy themes. Because I've been listening to those for 40 years. Yeah, coming back to Rogue One, as I have a little bit recently, after a year, I think that score really, really holds up well. I just love those themes. Well, I'm not saying anything bad about anything yet. I have not gotten to the Mendoza line. <laughs> okay? So for now, I put Rogue One fourth behind the original trilogy. Force Awakens, I, I really like Ray's theme... Although, I have to say that the Rays theme suite on the Force Awakens soundtrack may be one of my least favorite renditions of that theme. Really? It's used so much better when it's sort of, like, more punchier and more energetic and not as, like, you know, not on the Celeste. Oh, I like the Celeste bit a lot. It's not my cup of tea. I like Rays theme in a lot of its other uses more than I do in that suite. But that's where the theme came from. But I'm not giving New Hope bonus points because that's where stuff came from. I'm giving points to where I like to listen to it. So uh -huh. for that reason, I'd have to rank Force Awakens down a little. I like the new themes in Force Awakens. And Force Awakens does use a lot of the old themes. But again, as much as I like those new themes, I like them better used elsewhere rather than here. This is where they came from, but this is also, like, before they were developed. We could have done a whole episode on this. And also, all of these themes are ones that I've been listening to for two years and not 40 years. Yeah. So I'm also going to rank Force Awakens behind the original trilogy, but I think I will put it ahead of Rogue One. 
Okay. As much as I like Rogue One, I think Force Awakens is going to bump it down to fifth. The Last Jedi is very hard to judge because it's so new, but it doesn't have the long suites. Mm. It uses the themes really well, but it doesn't have the long suites. So, I th- on first blush, I'm going to put it ahead of Force Awakens. I like the theme use better in Last Jedi than I do on the Force Awakens score. Although, they're not like dwelled on enough for my taste, but I do... F- just considering the little punches we get, I like the way the themes developed. I like the way they're varied. I like that compared to the sort of standard suites of the Resistance March and Race theme on the Force Awakens CD. So I'll put Last Jedi fourth and bump Force Awakens down to fifth and bump Rogue One down to sixth. Now I'm at the Mendoza line. I would rank Attack of the Clones as the best of the prequel scores. I'm not going to put it ahead of Rogue One, but the love theme I do like. That's a good theme. I like the arena track that's on the CD that never actually made it into the movie. Like, most of it isn't in the movie, but I do like that track. I like the use of the Imperial March at the end. That was, I thought, very effective and very well done. So I'll rank clones at the top of the prequel heap. So I'll slot that in as seventh. I don't know that I've ever listened to the Revenge of the Sith score on its own. I saw Revenge of the Sith once. I don't know that I've ever listened to the CD. So I know very little about that score. You listened to it with me uh, when it first leaked on the internet. Did I? Yes. What did I think of it? Eh. (laughs) (laughs) Given the choice between the two massively overhyped and not very Star Wars sounding at all focus tracks of Duel of the Fates and Battle of the Heroes, I guess I'll go with Phantom Menace because I kind of like Anakin's theme. That's pretty decent. So I'll go Phantom Menace 8th and Revenge of the Sith 9th. So that would be Jedi, Empire, New Hope, Last Jedi, Force Awakens, Rogue One, Mendoza Line, <laughs> Attack of the Clones, Phantom Menace, Revenge of the Sith. I don't think my list is going to be quite as different as I might have thought before I asked. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to put Empire first. Because while a lot of stuff is developed and added to in Jedi, I think the myriad of variations on especially the Imperial March in Empire and the the whole Hoth battle and Empire has the best end credits track of any of them. That's true. The Empire end credits is just masterful. Yes, it's the best suite of all of them, yes. Absolutely. It has such different variations on the three themes, uh, the Imperial March and Yoda's theme and the Han and Leia love theme, than are in their respective highlight tracks and concert suites and such, because there's such a propulsive quality to it. I just love that end credits track so much. And the entire Hoth battle, the asteroid chase, so many highlights, you can barely name them. Clash of the lightsabers. Yes. Yeah, definitely. 
Number two, I think, would have to be Jedi for, you know, further variations on all of those, plus the Emperor's theme, plus the forest battle, the Jabba battle toward the beginning of the movie. What? That's one of my favorite tracks in the entirety of the franchise. <laughs> oh, I know that. And another <laughs> one is the final duel between Luke and Vader. Oh, yeah. Just such, like, operatic, heightened uh, emotional stuff. Third, I'd have to say New Hope for originating so much of it and having, like, different variations on the Force theme and on Leia's theme than you'll find in any of the other scores. Yeah. <sighs> Fourth is hard for me because just from revisiting it more lately, I want to push Rogue One up there. Yeah, like Rogue One, Force Awakens, and Last Jedi are all kind of in the same neighborhood of like really, really good, but not the best thing you've ever heard, like the original trilogy. Well, plus the original trilogy I've been listening to my whole life. I mean, yeah, but it, like, it's like trying to rank the movies. Nothing is going to rank with the ones I watched when I was five. Rogue One, Force Awakens, and Last Jedi. Any one of those scores would be the best Marvel movie score ever. Yeah. Any one of those scores would be the best Batman score ever. And Batman's had some pretty good scores. Mm. But they're good. They're not on that level. You know? Any one of those scores would be the best thing ever in, like, most other franchises. But they have more to compete with in this franchise. I think I do want to push Rogue One to number four just for how much those three main themes of that score have stuck with me. And how much they're new and fresh, but part of the whole. And a lot of the ways that they're used in, in the individual uh, scenes as well. So that's four. Five would have to be Force Awakens for everything that it brought. I mean, we were talking about Ray's theme and, 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 and a lot of the others. <sighs> um, how much would you yell at me if I put a prequel score above The Last Jedi? <laughs> a significant amount. <laughs> Is that our podcast now? <laughs> because, I don't know, I kind of want to. What? Pray tell prequel score, would you rank ahead of The Last Jedi? I'm not sure if I would want it to be Clones or Revenge of the Sith. I mean, we've been talking about it all this time. I'm kind of down on The Last Jedi score for having less new material to bring to the conversation and kind of the short biddiness of a lot of what is there. But then I think of Attack of the Clones other than the love theme <laughs> and a couple of tracks. And I think of Revenge of the Sith other than um, the Battle of the Heroes is, is fine. That's perfectly good stuff. And some of the downfall of Anakin, downfall of the Republic music is effective. Uh, Anakin's Dark Deeds and a couple other tracks. Okay, if I think about it on the level of what would I want to listen to right now, I suppose I'd have to put Last Jedi at 6th, and then Clones, Sith, Phantom Menace. Because th that Phantom Menace score, I mean, it falls victim like the movie to heightened expectations, but I'm really not hot on Anakin's theme, and I've always found Duel of the Fates pretty overrated. What about Qui-Gon's theme? I love Qui-Gon's theme, obviously. <laughs> I sing it all day and all night. 
Oh, God. Speaking of Battle of the Heroes, do you want to talk about where they use Battle of the Heroes in this score? You know, the one we're supposed to be talking about? Oh, jeez. In, in the... During the bombing run at the beginning of the movie, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, where, so, where somehow they're dropping bombs in zero gravity? Well, I mean, Star Wars is about dogfights. Until someone does a light speed jump into a ship. But that's like the one innovative battle maneuver in all of Star Wars, so... <laughs> yeah, they're, they're dropping bombs in space. <laughs> well, you can't think about the science of Star Wars. Can't I... You can't. You. They put out enough books about it. You can't have expectations for scientific fidelity in Star Wars. It's a pulp serial and a fairy tale in space. That was my main impression of the score before I saw the movie, is that Duel of the Fates thing, and then Yoda's theme showing up. It's like, where are these themes coming from? And it, it reminded me more than anything of the first Hobbit movie, where they, like, escape the wolves and the orcs, and then they play the dawning of the Fourth Age theme. Uh, yeah. And, and, I'm, and I was just, like, wondering, like, where the hell are these coming from? But the, the it turns out Yoda's in the fucking movie. Yeah. And this, you know... That, just, that doesn't mean we need 30 seconds of Yoda's theme interrupting things in the end credits, but alright. What's it interrupting? 30 seconds of something else? Well... But the use of Battle of the Heroes here still doesn't have much of an explanation, I don't think, other than just it sounds kind of cool, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's it's a chord progression John Williams likes. Mm. The thing about Battle of the Heroes, and also Duel of the Fates, is that when they were used in those movies, they were just so overblown. Like, they became the hyper-focus of everything, and they weren't, like, built up to, and they weren't developed further. They just, like, existed... They came out of nowhere, they are what they were, they had like all this choral stuff, and then it, they just sort of went nowhere. And, and yet they were like the prime focus. Like, the first movie was focused on Luke's theme and the Force theme, and those were used all the time and developed all the time and used in different ways. And Empire was focused on the Imperial March, and it was used all the time and developed in different ways. Duel of Fates and Battle of the Heroes were just sort of, like, the huge focus, even though they were only really used in one scene and only used in one way. Whereas the little bit of Battle of the Heroes that pops up in The Last Jedi, it's... I don't want to call it understated, but it's not as overblown, you know? It, well, no, because I don't think it's an intentional reference to the prior theme. It is the theme, though. What do you mean it's not an intentional it's, reference? It's part of it, Yeah. It's like saying to be or not to be, and then saying that's not an intentional reference to Shakespeare. It's more like saying, you know, I want to be with you, and then saying that's not an intentional reference to Shakespeare. That's just, it's using a phrase. But it's not as overblown, and it doesn't stand out from the rest of the score as much, and so it sort of fits in better with everything around it. Yeah, it's a little more complicated with Duel of the Fates, because there are, uh unreleased kind of variations on bits of it that weren't used in The Phantom Menace because the music editing in the prequels is a nightmare garbage fire. <laughs> um, but there's there's there a couple minutes of variations on that that were composed for the lightsaber duel before George Lucas heard the concert suite and said, put that in everywhere. There are a couple of minutes that have been isolated from one of the video games back in the day. It's a whole scene that I used to be in. 
And I don't. I have no idea how much more there is because there hasn't been a proper release of that score. But you know, is there a single thing wrong with the prequels that can't be laid at the feet of George Lucas? Well, I mean, when he's directing and producing the movies, I mean. But I mean, the music wasn't as good as it should have been, and you're saying part of that was to blame on George. Well, a lot of it was to blame for George Lucas's editing schedule, and now you're saying part of it was to blame for George Lucas telling John Williams what music to put where. Well, that, the that, acting that... sucked, and that's Lucas's fault. The writing sucked, and that's Lucas's fault. Uh, uh yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Both the dialogue and the storyline both sucked, and both of those are Lucas's fault. I wonder. Williams seemed to enjoy working with J.J. Abrams for The Force Awakens. I'm not saying he had any sort of negative relationship with Ryan Johnson. I'm sure it's fine. I wonder how much of the feeling of reinvigoration that's in the Force Awakens score is due to having, you know, a better relationship with J.J. Abrams' style of filmmaking, maybe, and how much of it is due to just the qualities of the movie, you know, having new characters and new actors and new situations to write music for. I'm really not sure. But that feeling of freshness and, and reinvigoration, I think, is what I'm not sensing from The Last Jedi. I wouldn't go that far. I think The Last Jedi is a really good score. I just... It lacks some things that I've gotten used to from my Star Wars scores. And not in terms of quality, but just in terms of presentation. In form, yeah. Yeah. It lacks the sweet presentation of the new theme. It lacks the sweet presentation of any themes. Yeah. Star Wars always sort of dwelled on its themes. I mean, Binary Sunset is a long track. Yeah. The Imperial March, not even... A lot of the times the concert suite was in the movie. Like, the Imperial March concert suite, the first, like, two minutes of that is just in Empire. Uh, it was replacing other music that was written for that scene, yeah. I mean, of, of the first reveal of the Imperial fleet. So, it's not just in the end credits, but even during the movie, you're used to, like, the theme playing. Like, the first scene where we see Rey scavenging and they play Rey's theme, that's a long scene with a long bit of her theme. Yeah. You don't get that in Last Jedi. Not even for the new theme, really. Yeah, it, some of those formal elements, I think, are a little lacking, as fine as it is in other respects. All right, well, thank you very much, Alana, for being with us. My pleasure. And it seems like we're not going to have to wait that long for the next Star Wars movie, because uh, the Han Solo movie's coming out in like six months, isn't it? Really? Not next December? Yeah, they pushed it up to May. They Shit. pushed it up after all the production Michigas going on in that movie? I don't know, I guess. It's kind of weird that there hasn't been anything released from it. There's probably going to be a trailer soon-ish. But it's coming out this spring, and there isn't, like, publicity photos. They should have done a trailer to release with The Last Jedi. You'd think. I mean, doesn't the Avengers movie also come out this spring, and they did a trailer for that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a franchise movie every other week now, but... So many, yes. Uh, but, yes, Elena, we will absolutely have you back for the next Star Wars movie as our uh, Star Wars news and information correspondent. Woohoo! Standing invite! Ha! <laughs> And on whatever else strikes her fancy between now and then, who knows? Uh, so, yes, thanks so very much for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure, guys. 
Thanks again to Alana for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Scott, for being here. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. Uh, to do our closing plugs, if you would like to reach me, you could do that on the Twitter or the Tumblr at Glennybun. And one more plug for our advice show that we're trying to do here on the old Spectacular with Scott and myself and my good friend, friend of the show, Mr. Steve Willie. The email address for that, again, is spectacularadvice at gmail.com. Please include a name if you would like us to read one. We won't read one otherwise. So if you want to be anonymous, you can. The other way to reach us for that advice show is at ask.fm slash spectacularadvice. You do need an Ask.fm account, but your question submission can be anonymous there as well. So, please reach out to us for that. We are trying to gather more questions for that. And stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you very much, and good night, everyone. Wait, wait, wait. We didn't talk about the Finn-Rose-Ray love triangle. Fuck off. That's our thing! We have to talk about the love triangle! No, no, wait! Don't end the show yet! No idea if any of this is in the show right now. <laughs> well, maybe you would have an idea if you took some interest in what winds up in your podcast. Says the poor <laughs> underling editor. Oh, I'm not the big important one. My name's not on the door. I just edit the thing and make it into a listenable show. Alana drops off the call and suddenly we start bickering again. <laughs> <laughs>